I used to see that as beautiful. Yeah, I know. But, now, but actually, that's a problem. That's like yeah, it's a problem because he still because, has to come out on top. So which I, want, I says, want to be right, but not so quickly. Right. I want to. I want to slam your hand down. I want to exactly. crush your head against exactly. the wall. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I want it to be a decent battle. You know, it's, I need. I need an Asa connector. I need someone right. who's as heavy as me. And the, because there's no point in boxing with someone who I'm going to knock over. Right. So this guy was a great boxing partner. But of course, I always used to win. Right. right or I always used. Right. I never. I was never transformed by the encounter. Right. What Robbie Ockland should have done is to say, you know, something. I don't have a. I don't. I don't. It's not. I don't know everything. And you came from a different world and you've brought me Torah, which is from outside. You brought me Torah from the world of men mm. and you brought me Torah from the, from the outside world, from the world of bows and arrows. And you know something? Thank you. Mm. Thank you. He should have said, mm. thank you. I'm wondering whether if Rabbi Yochanan has actually become a robber or a high, he's become a bandit. Basically he likes to win through robbery. He likes to win through domination. Through force. So, so yeah. force, force. Yeah, so he's, so here he says like, you know, right, you know, he, right. he can't back down. Why can't I back right. down? Let him die. Yeah. What is, right. Who says let him die? Who says let him die? A bandit. That was my chavruta and nemesis, Rabbi Joel Levy. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, creator and host of Padrash. We were talking about a famous Talmudic story in which Rabbi Yochanan, the greatest scholar of his generation, meets up in the Jordan River with Reish Lakish, a burly thug. Rabbi Yochanan implores him to do tshuva, to leave his criminal past behind, and devote himself to Torah. Reish Lakish not only says yes, he becomes one of the greatest sages of the time, such that he and Rabbi Yochanan become study partners. But at one critical moment, Reish Lakish out-argues Rabbi Yochanan. The teacher overcomes the master. And what does Rabbi Yochanan do at that moment? He puts Reish Lakish down, reminding him of his criminal past. In his moment of weakness, Rabbi Yochanan resorts to cruelty in direct violation of an explicit injunction not to remind the person who's done tshuva of his past. But this is no ancient tale. It's today's story. Can Dan just be Dan? Or must he always be a convicted rapist? Can I let my spouse child or best friend change a deeply ingrained pattern of behavior? Why is it so hard to let someone transform themselves? Welcome to episode 5, Always Doing Time. We have a lot of Torah to learn. Y'all stay with us. Our text for the day is an episode from NPR's Invisibilia, entitled The Personality Myth. It explores to what extent we can meaningfully talk of someone's personality. One of the main threads that serves that exploration is the story of Delia Cohen, an NPR reporter who found herself covering a TEDx event put on in the Marion Correctional Facility. She meets the organizer, Dan, a prisoner who has the word hatred tattooed on his neck, and she's impressed and inspired by him. So much so, that she decides to suggest that they work together and try to replicate the TEDx model in other correctional facilities. First of all, I wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed meeting you and what a fabulous job you did with TEDx. I drove away from Marion brimming with excitement and emotion and possibility. Then it happened. As I, I was driving, my friend Googled your and I read it case aloud. history. And, and I hope you don't mind me sharing my reaction with you. I have to admit, 
I was shocked. You just heard Delia begin to read the email she wrote to Dan, and Dan reading the email he received from her. The it that happened was that upon getting back in her car after the event, Delia's sidekick, Nurit Eisenman, Googles Dan to find out why he's in prison. The answer, violent rape, shook Delia profoundly and left her wondering how she could reconcile the past of Dan's with the person she had just met. Dan isn't surprised by Delia's reaction. It's painful to him, but not surprising. Jason Bunting, the warden of Marion, explains the problem well. The community thinks about people that are incarcerated as criminal. An inmate will always be manipulative. An inmate will always be uh, mean and angry. And those things never change. In fact, he says this belief is so ingrained that it appears in our language without us even realizing it. Then he points out my own first question to him after we met this guy who used to be incarcerated at Marion, but was now a free man who had just come to Jason's office to see him. What was your first question to me? What did he do? That's for your first response. Formerly incarcerated, you're, you did it. What did he do? Who cares what he did? Who cares? Once a violent rapist, always a violent rapist, or at least always an ex-violent rapist. Dan goes so far as to say, with more acceptance than resentment, that he's changed so fundamentally that he's doing time for a crime that he did not commit. Just listen to the way that he describes his powerful moment of transformation. I was at a close security institution. Uh, one of my, my best friend at the time, the guy I spent more time with than anybody, someone I professed to love, treat his family, uh, did something really stupid, had for some reason stolen something from another inmate cell. And because of that, the guys who found out it was him wanted to do something to him. And in order to stop that, because he was a sheltered kid, got locked up when he was a teenager, I went and took care of it for him. Dan threatened to beat the men if they touched his friend. Dan's a big guy and had a reputation for being violent, so they listened. And then I went back to him and I taught him a lesson that hurt me more than it hurt him. Oh, you mean you, you physically hurt him? Yeah. I'm like, like the, I remember while I was doing it, he was asking me to stop. And I was like, how could you be so stupid? I'm going to beat the stupid out of you. This hurts me more than it hurts you. This is, this is an easy lesson you're learning the hard way. And these are the same terms that the male role models in my life used on me when they were teaching me lessons. And I remember looking in the mirror and looking down at him like, whoa, what am I doing? This is someone I say I love. This is someone I say I care about. This is someone I say I treat like a family. This is how you treat family? And that was the last time I uh, physically hurt a human being. Yeah. But Dan was aware of the fact that he would need more than inner resolve to effectuate change. He would have to change his environment, even within the confines of prison. They called a gang, but you guys are get together every day. You guys spend hours learning about each other, working out together, playing cards together, basketball, whatever. And then you belong. And I walked away from that. To isolate myself, to stay away from the physical violence, yeah. So that, so you, you tried to change your situation so that you could change who you were? Yeah. I just... Uh, and was that hard? It was almost impossible. It was easier to be a no-good mother than it was to be alone. Dan, it would seem, is free. He knows that he's become a new person and he's able to accept the price that he continues to pay for what he did in his past. But we, 
the ones who imprison him, find ourselves subjugated to a reified image of who Dan is, or was, or is because he was. Why do we hang on to Dan's past? The psychologist Walter Michel explains to reporter Alex Spiegel. And it's no wonder, as Walter Michel told me, that we're drawn to this idea that personality is important and stable. It makes us feel better. I mean, how can you marry anybody unless you believe that they're essentially going to be like you've got them pictured now? We like to feel that we're living in a stable world. It's, I think the more we learn about the universe, the more we learn about its instability. I want to welcome Rabbi Diane Kohler-Essis. Diane is Associate Rabbi and Director of Lifelong Learning for Romamua Synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And she was the first woman to be ordained as a rabbi from a very cloistered community of Syrian Jews. And she's, as a result of that, dedicated a rabbinate to opening up possibilities for others. She's a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary, and she was named one of the top 50 rabbis by the Washington Post online. Diane, it is a pleasure to have you with us on Padrash. Thanks for being here. Leon, I'm so glad to be here. It's so nice to reconnect after all these years. Yes, I neglected to mention that Diane is a long, long time friend uh, from her days in Jerusalem. Let's start, Diane, by hearing when you heard uh, the personality myth. Tell me where it met you, what it brought up for you what issues it raised. I loved listening to that podcast. And in fact, I would listen to anything you recommended. I listened to it as a result. <laughs> um, very dramatic and well done. And the question of consistency and coherence and personality is a huge one for me. I grew up in a, in a difficult and complicated family. And I'm always wondering what role the past plays in the present and how much mm. does it determine who we are at this moment? Mm. What were the specific, uh, some of the specific issues that it made you think about, let's say, from within a Jewish framework? It sent me right to the concept of tshuva, of repentance, mm-hmm. and the power of tshuva. And specifically, it, what, what, brought, what came to mind was this prohibition against reminding a baal tshuva, a person who's repented already, about their past before they repented. And that felt to me like once you've entered a new story, don't remind someone of their past story because it's actually over. And don't confine them, don't imprison them with their past story. Right. Because there's something about that that's that's actually false. They're not imprisoned with their past story. I feel like the tradition is, is giving us a promise and a possibility of living a new life. So what, what do you mean when you say that there's something that's false about that? You know, it's interesting because this actually goes against the 12-step program a little bit. But let's say someone's an alcoholic and no longer drinks. Mm. And, say, and you say to them, yeah, of course you would act that way. You're really an alcoholic, right? And it's, it's confining them in a way that's not true given what their life is right now. Like they've move past that. Hmm. They are no longer drinking. And if you tell them that you're an alcoholic and you can find them with that narrative, then you're seeing their present actions in light of that past, as opposed to in the light of the person they've become. Two different issues come up from the things that you say. One is, to what extent I, as a person who struggles, let's say, with addiction, 
continue to think of myself as someone who struggles with addiction? Uh, and to what extent can someone else outside of me view me through that lens? There's this very powerful moment in the podcast, right, where Dan discusses what it was like for him to read the letter that Delia wrote to him after she heard about what he had done in the past uh, and, and she couldn't help in, a, in order to, to maintain her relationship with him. She had to, she had to voice that she had to say those things. And there's this moment where he's asked by Lulu, I think, what was it like for you to read that letter? And, and basically there was a heartbreaking moment where he says, that's, that's what I'm used to. That is what it means to be a prisoner. Uh, or, you know, in Jewish terms, we would think of it as that's what it means to be a Balchuva, that someone who is marked as having sinned in the past. Yeah, it's but, kind of like the mark of Cain. Yeah, right. Share with me, you know, what, what text uh, you thought of and why, and why you thought of that text. Absolutely. So there's this amazing story about two rabbis, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, and um, their relationship with one another. And it's preceded by this idea in the Mishnah of the prohibition against reminding someone about their life before they made tshuva, which is exactly what Rabbi Yochanan will do. So the story is, Reish Lakish is a robber, and he sees Rabbi Yochanan swimming in the river. Mm -hmm. And Reish Lakish, drawn to his beauty, and perhaps thinking he was a woman, jumps into the river after him. And he says... To Rabbi Yochanan, oh, I wish your beauty was sort of embodied in a female or something like that. And Rabbi Yochanan says, well, if you give up your life of thievery, then you can marry my sister who looks just like me. And Reish Lakish abandons his life of crime and turns his life to Torah and marries Rabbi Yochanan's, Rabbi Yochanan's sister and becomes Rabbi Yochanan's study partner. Hmm. So it's a life of tshuva. And then ultimately for complicated reasons, Rabbi Yochanan actually reminds Reish Lakish in a difficult moment of his past life of being a robber. Okay, so I, I, there, there's two moments or aspects that I want to unpack with you. The first is, and it relates directly to the podcast, that, that initial moment where they spot each other. Uh, in a certain sense, that initial moment in the text is parallel or echoes the initial moment in the podcast because Delia first spots Dan when he's uh, or he and a couple of other prisoners are dancing. There's a kind of fluidity and there's a movement there. And I think that there's something similar going on in terms of Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish meeting in the river, which is a, which is a place of movement and fluidity. So I'm, I'm wondering whether there's some conversation going on here between what it is, the way in which we relate to someone in a kind of structured way in which we hold on to certain concepts of a person, maybe a certain concepts of ourselves. Um, what in the podcast is, I think, very rigorously called personality, and a more fluid conception of what it means to be a human being, where things are in constant movement. As in the podcast, right, there's this kind of dissonance, which, is, which plays itself out very poetically between the prisoner who she does not expect to be dancing ballet and, you know, at least one of them has awkward movements and one of them has fluid movements. But either way, there's this kind of dissonance, you know, this visual dissonance, but it's pointing to some, something deeper. So it's almost like the water or the dance promises us that we're something beyond the crime or mm. beyond the, that kernel of, of shame. Like there's this fluidity that, that says to us, 
you know, we're part of life and some, somehow bigger than that reified crime. Now let's, let's fast forward to that moment in the text that, that you want to look at where Rabbi Yochanan says to Reish Lakish, reminds him of his past. Surely Rabbi Yochanan, who's the greatest of the rabbis in his generation in, in the land of Israel, surely he knows that Mishnah, which says that you're not supposed to remind a Balchuva of his past. So, yes. so why is it? Why, why does yeah. Rabbi Yochanan fall there? Here's one understanding. I mean, there might be other understandings. I'd love to hear your take on the text. So Rabbi Yochanan is a great master, and Reish Lakish becomes his student. And yet Reish Lakish dares to disagree with him. Then Rabbi Yochanan puts him in, in his place, since the argument is about weapons. Rabbi Yochanan says, well, a robber knows his trade, right? A robber knows his trade. To me, that sounds like a power move. Like Rabbi Yochanan wants to put Reish Lakish in his place because God forbid Reish Lakish should surpass him in Torah, should right. surpass him in the realm in which Rabbi Yochanan is a master. When Reish Lakish says to Rabbi Yochanan, why they called me a rabbi, I was the head of my group of robbers, and now I'm a rabbi, I'm, I'm great in Torah study, and you promised me a different world. There was supposed to, the Torah was supposed to be a redeemed world, a world of value, a world, let's say, where people have the possibility to change, right, to do tshuva. And really, uh, you've spoiled it for me. In fact, the world of Torah is no different than the world of being a robber. I, I'm reminded of this very powerful moment also in the podcast. It's, it, was, it just took my breath away, where Dan describes the moment when he changed, um, when he said that he went and beat up this uh, friend of his, who was a fellow prisoner, and he caught himself doing it, and he decided that he didn't want to do it anymore. But then, but then the moment that really took my breath away is what he says afterwards. What he says afterwards is that what it required him to do was to leave all of the people that he was hanging out with, and that there was what was maybe most difficult in that process was the loneliness. Maybe Reish Lakish is saying to Rabbi Yochanan, it's a failure of Torah. The Torah doesn't actually live up to its promise of being something which is a promise of the potential of transformation. Yeah. If this is the manifestation of Torah, I don't want it. Right. 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 Exactly. And, and I think you and I like have experienced that, right? Not every Torah world is redeemed, right? Oh boy. It comes with all the complexity of, of human beings. Like, right. Let's ask Rachel Akusha's question. How does Torah benefit us? Right? Does it really raise up our worlds? Right, that's so, a huge, huge challenge. I mean, one thing that I would say is that there's this powerful moment in the text itself where the Torah critiques itself. That is to say, the Torah is basically saying at this time, through Reish Lakish, that it is only as good and as powerful as the people who are its carriers. That is to say, if I go back to my question, my initial question, of course, Rabbi Yochanan knew this Mishnah that, that he's not supposed to remind a Balchuva of his past. So, so is the problem in the Mishnah or the problem is Rabbi Yochanan's ability to live out that Mishnah? If we try to connect it to the story of um, Dan, the prisoner, and Delia, and the, and the struggle that she's having, and the issue that, that it raised for you, or the issues that it raised for you. So, so, so plug us back in. How is it, how is it now that, that this question of fluidity, or this question of being static, is now going to plug back into the podcast and, 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 and bring us to questions about ourselves and our own ability to transform ourselves? I'm struck by two things with Delia. So she sees Dan dancing, 
Mm-hmm. And she's also, you know, overwhelmed by what a beautiful person Dan, Dan is, right? Mm. He's, he's charming and open right. and a good listener. And like, you know, all the things that me and you might find beautiful in a person. It's like, wow, this person's really lovely and they're really generous right. and they're really, you know, expansive. And then she finds out he's a rapist. And she's like, oh my God, how do I hold these two things in my head? Right. Right. Dan and the fluidity and beauty of who he is. And the fact that he has this criminal history. Can I just yeah. add one thing there yeah. and then and then keep going? Please. Just the way that she says it, um, at the beginning at least of the podcast, is she says he was a rapist and he has that in him. That is to say, she thinks of it as something, yes. there is some kind of essential aspect or potential that he has, which is there. You know, that's, that's the dissonance, right? So go ahead. Yeah. So I feel like I've spent my life wondering about people and the different parts that don't connect. And I, and my father, may his memory be blessed, was a person of like great rage on one hand, and even, I will say even great cruelty. And on the other hand, great charm and, um, and generosity and compassion. And, you know, as a, as a child, I could know, I, I could not put those pieces together. Mm. I could not. And I would even say that I spent my adult life trying to figure out how both those things could coexist. Now, this is mm. different than Dan, because what Delia is saying is like, oh, he had that past, and now his present is completely different. Mm. Well, what I was wrestling with is this complicated personality. And I always reckon with and wrestle with in myself and in others, like these pieces that just don't fit. And I've come to believe that there's actually something liberating about not trying to make them fit. Like one, I don't have to discredit one part of my father's personality with the other. Like I don't have to say because he was raging and cruel on one hand, that his generosity and kindness weren't real. They were both real. And how can I hold that? Mm. Right? How can I hold it? How can we hold the fact that Dan was a rapist? And should we hold it, right? Should we hold it at all? And the fact that he's a lovely person now, like what do we do with that? And as human beings, can we even hold those opposites? They can be really painful, right? To hold that much dissonance. In terms of the dissonance, would it, if, if you don't mind my asking, right? Um, yeah. You brought up your father. So, I, so yeah. I'm, I'm just continuing to ask in that direction. Yeah. Does it matter to you, would it have been of moment or significance if you had felt that those aspects of his personality that were difficult were things that he was working on, where he was trying, where he was in, in a process of trying to undergo transformation. Is that of significance? Yeah, that would that that would have helped. I I look back and and think now he simply didn't have the resources or the capacity for many mm. reasons, including uh, a deeply traumatized childhood. So on one hand, part of what you're saying, I think. Um, is that uh, m- maybe you're maybe you're revolting against the, um, the the very premise of this episode of Invisibilia that there is such a thing as you know a hue a personality that is to say and I'm I'm struck by it at the beginning of the episode where they ask the people who are about to get married to describe the personality of the person they're going to marry uh, or also when they ask the warden to describe Dan's personality as if it's just this one thing right. Right. Um, right. As opposed to saying, describe Dan, in which case, or describe Diane's father or describe Leon. Uh, and then we would say this and this and this, and, and we wouldn't necessarily think that they have to all fit together neatly. Right. To, to sort of treat each other as if we're a flow. And on the other hand, it makes sense just in, in human existence and the organization of social life that 
we get to know each other and we see patterns. That's also real. Like, I don't right. want to completely deny that. That we get in the episode when they talk about why people marry each other or the, the ability to marry someone or to have a lifelong relationship with someone or even maybe not a lifelong but a five-year-long or one-year-long relationship with someone is, is contingent upon my thinking that at some level they're predictable, what you called patterns of, of that person's behavior. So, so I guess I would ask you is to, to what extent the idea of chuva threatens that ability to have a secure sense of who the other person is? Yeah, I think that's a fabulous question. My sense of, and my understanding of like family systems and psychology, like as soon as someone does something different in a family, there's something threatening about that. We when all someone- try to rein each other in just because we're familiar with a certain pattern. And when we try to shift the pattern, we all get uncomfortable. I know even when I try to change myself, I get uncomfortable with that and I have to regress. Mm. Right, so chuva is sort of like this back and forth dance to go back to the image of dance. So I want to go back to what you were saying in terms of the, um, the, the, the family ecosystem, as you called it, right? In other words, yeah. my, my rabbi and teacher, David Hartman of Blessed Memory, used to say that the hardest place to do chuva is in your family. Yes. Right? Oh, my God. Because um, th- if we shift, then it makes, right, what you, what you called, it, it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, so, that there's something... So- threatening about that, even if it's not a con- if not as a conscious reaction, there's just something threatening about that. Can you unpack it for us? Why, why is that threatening, right? Hmm, I'm thinking about this. Like there's something about painting, like you always do this, that kind of nails someone to a past that make, maybe makes me feel secure because I have the power of defining someone in a story, even if it's a negative story. Mm, right. I want to relate that understanding that you're suggesting to, to two things. One is in the text and, and the other is in this crazy world that we're living in right now. Yeah. In the text, you to get back to what I promised we would get back to, your understanding of what, what's going on for Rabbi Yochanan at the time that he puts Reish Lakish down, what you suggested back then was that there was an issue of power there. And I, and I very much agree with it. That's how I've always understood it, that there's this moment at the very moment that Reish Lakish kind of surpasses his teacher. And, and so the way that he, the way that he gets back at Reish Lakish is to, is to put him down and, and to assert control by, by putting him in a straitjacket, so to speak. If I were to relate this idea to what's going on around us with the COVID reality, right? Like, I think that one of the things that has been most dizzying for all of us is, I mean, we all know theoretically that we have no control. And so part of what we're after in our own realities is to create little areas, little spaces in the world where we have certainty and where we have control. Uh, And I think that one of the inimical possibilities of that is that we do that with the people who are around us. That means that we have to let go when we really don't have control. I mean, that's, that's terrifying. Absolutely. Yes. I even think about like the inner voices we have. Like I think of carrying on negative voices from my childhood instead of just sort of framing a new narrative. It's like, okay, I've done something. I can either call it stupid or I can call it a mistake and move on. Mm. Right? right. And it's like, do I use that narrative? It's less about power maybe, but sort of does it connect me? To, does it tether me to my past? And there's something about that that feels safe. Even a negative narrative. That is to even, say. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. I can understand 
right? Why it's scary that someone else changes, right? I can understand why if my wife were to come home and say, you know, I've decided to do X, Y, or Z, and it felt totally yeah. incongruous with the person that I knew, why that would send me uh, spinning. But but why is it destabilizing and unnerving when we when we ourselves change in unexpected ways? So it reminds me of a story of Lot after the destruction of Stom and Amara. He moves into this small place and then he can't even sustain the expanse there. So he moves into a cave, mm. right? I feel like our own self-narratives are a kind of cave in which we keep ourselves safe from the bigness of life. You're talking about control. I feel like there are ways that we control ourselves and just keep ourselves in safe territory. And mm. our self-concept functions along those lines or along those lies, as I almost said. Right. Right. It strikes me that part of what you're talking about here is, in that sense, fear and faith, I'm, I'm understanding them or thinking about them as, as opposites. That is to say, I, I'm, I'm fearful of what's out there, and so I kind of um, hunker down and, and, and go further and further and deeper and deeper in and enclose myself uh, right. more and more. And the opposite of that is to kind of not be afraid of the unknown, which is, I think, I would say the, the, the consummate act of faith. Yes, which brings us to people like Abraham or, or Ruth, right? right? Leaving everything they know. Right. And, and, and yet, I don't want to say, I feel like, in a sense, I've been humbled by life. Like, we, need, we still need tethering, but what, mm. what can tether us that is life-giving as opposed to confining mm. and, and what? So, so you're asking a you're asking a question that I don't know how to answer. So, give me give me the beginning of an answer. This is what I call the unbearable lightness of being. Like we have so much anxiety because the world is genuinely terrifying, mm. right? And the unknown is genu- genuinely terrifying. So, I think things like a religious tradition can tether mm. us, and spiritual practices, and connection and community. It's all tethering, and the challenge is how can we be tethered and free? But that's the paradox. That's a paradox that we somehow have to navigate even though i left a traditional community which felt like the ultimate expression of freedom what i discovered over the years is that i was replaying some deep deep patterns that were embedded in my family history and it's like oh my god i was the lone heroine who left everything she knew like i was abraham mm, that's, I was that was that was that was that was something that you discovered that was really true yeah and then and then i and i and i thought i was like that hero and then i wasn't that hero because i was like oh my god i've really recreated some very destructive patterns for my own for my own you know buried history that was deeply humbling deeply humbling. if we take a step back and we look at what's going on outside of the bait midrash outside of our personal lives and we think where does this take us in our historical moment so what is it what's your takeaway from you know from from dan and from and from rabbi yohanan and from rachel kish so we live in a in a society in which prisons play a huge role and Mm. a very dispiriting role and i and i feel like in our society we've put one class and mostly people of color we've imprisoned them not only in reality, but in a certain narrative, you know, that, that our society is guilty of that. And how do we release ourselves from our narrative, from this narrative and go forward in a new way that reflects a deeper, deeper freedom. There's this fantasy of autonomy and all 
power and individual individualism in which I can master anything. Mm. And my, you know, at this point in my life, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be 60 in the fall. I feel like with humility, it's so not true. Like we are not masters. Mm. We are born into a certain moment in history. We're born into a class. We're born into a culture. We are defined by all kinds of outside factors and our freedom is limited. And, and yet I wouldn't deny that we are free to respond to all these factors at the same time being humble before them. But if Rabbi Yochanan could say, oh my God, I'm feeling really threatened right now. Mm. that You are actually at this moment more skillful in Torah than I am. Mm. So the transformative moment would be Rabbi Yochanan's ability to acknowledge how frightening it is, the fluidity of things. That is to say, the power of tshuva is frightening for Rabbi Yochanan. That is to say that Reish Lakish's ability to become a new person and to leave his past of being a criminal and become a master of Torah, who's greater even than Rabbi Yochanan himself, who originally taught him Torah, that is so disorienting for Rabbi Yochanan that the transformative capability would be if Rabbi Yochanan could say right then at that moment, that's what's happening for me, and that is truly frightening. Yes. That is truly frightening for me, the fluidity of things. Yeah, and to go back to your, your, your saying, well, there's either faith and fear. Maybe there's fear and faith. fear and faith. In other words, naming our fear in any one moment is also an act of faith. Mm. Say how how is that an act of naming yeah. fear is a way of giving up control. Mm. Naming fear is saying I'm still here. I'm still in connection with you, mm. and I may even at this moment acknowledge my lack of mastery over you. That moment, as you're describing it, requires a certain grace and a certain acceptance of the other person's transformation and the fact that not only has the other person transformed, uh, but our relationship as a result of that has also metamorphosed into something that it wasn't before. Yeah, I guess every transformation requires or asks of the people around that person further transformation. Right. Like every tshuva sort of invites tshuva. Mm, beautiful. Right. And that's and in that sense, that's the failure and the pain of the story, is that Reish Lakish's tshuva invites Rabbi Yochanan's tshuva, and Rabbi Yochanan doesn't live it out. And that, I think, actually is why, at the end of the story, what Rabbi Yochanan finds himself in the very tragic end of the story, I mean, this is not a Hollywood ending, yes. Rabbi Yochanan finds himself having gone crazy because he's alone. Yeah. In other words, the yeah. only place where we have total control, and even that, as you said earlier in our conversation, we don't even have total control there, is, is, is between the four walls of our own mind. Um, but that's a very, very painful and lonely place to be, and it's a tremendously high price to pay for control. Yes, right. That's right. Thank you, Diane, for a wonderful conversation. Lovely to have with you, Leon. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel, where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to David Dow, guest of our Hypertech segment, we'll break briefly in order to meet Kolot alumna Tamar Naor, 
who was a CEO in the areas of high-tech and clean-tech before founding IDEA. We chatted so that I can learn about her and how learning at Colot has impacted her. Hi, everybody. I'm Tamar Noor. I have over 25 years of executive experience in the high-tech industry and clean-tech industry. In the past five years, I'm actually focusing on social activity with my own non-for-profit and I'm dealing with dialogue between the virus communities in Israel, specifically conflict dialogues and dialogue resolution. I love poetry and literature and, and have a degree in philosophy, but never had a chance to learn texts and understandings that Leon introduced to me and later on the other teachers in Kulot in my business and social activities, both. Kulot is the ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish heritage of living within the conflict, dialoguing within the conflict and loving each other like Hillel and Shammai, despite disagreements. And at the end of the day, and this solidarity is what we miss the most these days. And I feel that Kolot gave me the optimism and hope that this solidarity at the end of the day will prevail. Because of Kolot, because I saw the texts and discussions can bridge differences. I started a group of women, women settlers from Samaria and women like me, uh, non-religious executives in different business areas. And Rachel from Kolot was our first instructor. And again, the way she presented texts and dialogue to us helped us become friends and enhance the ties between us. And from this group, I, together with other practices that I use from business, from uh, business negotiation, Jewish texts and secular texts, and dynamic and active listening, I created the idea dialogue style that has some connection to what Colot is doing and to the business world. And actually this is how it all happened. And now we have already 10 groups, more than 100 members. Amazing. And, and uh, we're trying to bridge the gaps between the, the Israeli communities. Tamar Noor, thank you for sharing with us and keep doing the wonderful work that you're doing. Like every episode of Padrash, Learning at Kolot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us, beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, visit www.kolot.info. And now, back to our episode. I want to welcome to Padrash my older, actually oldest, and uh, esteemed brother, dear, dear brother, uh, whom I love and respect tremendously, David Dow. David is the Cullen Professor uh, at the University of Houston Law Center, where he teaches and writes in the areas of contracts and constitutional law and theory, as well as First Amendment, and what brings us to 
our conversation now, death penalty law. Uh, David is the founder of Texas' oldest innocence project, the Texas Innocence Network, and he has represented, oh goodness, uh, probably over a couple of hundred of inmates who are facing execution. He has a very, very powerful TED Talk that you can find the link to in our episode notes. And he's written very powerfully and movingly about his work uh, defending people on death row. I can recommend amongst the many things that he's written, the autobiography of an execution, which is a very, very powerful memoir. David, thank you so much for being here on Podrash. I'm honored to be here, uh, Leon. I haven't represented a couple of hundred people. That's that's All right. too many, but it, uh, maybe what? 100 115, 120, let's say. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Thank you for the correction. Good. I want to just start by asking at the deepest, most basic human level, when you have sat time after time across the table from clients whom you know have done horrible things, what has been the kind of gamut of emotional uh, experience that you've had in terms of your posturing towards them? It's been quite a range, I would say. I think that in all of the cases where it's possible for me to meet my client without knowing first what he or she has done. I say or she, but I'm going to stop saying or she from now on because it would be precious. I've represented 115 people maybe, and three of them are women. So I'm just going to stick with the masculine pronoun going forward. In most of the cases, I try very hard to meet my client for the first time without actually knowing what he's done. Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes I get appointed to represent people who are notorious. So, for example, if I represent somebody who killed a prison guard or killed a police officer or killed people and then was escaping for years and years, those are cases where the details of the story, you can't avoid them. But otherwise, I really try to go meet my clients without actually knowing what they did. I obviously know that they killed somebody. Right. But I don't know the details of it. And I think that that can matter a lot because mm-hmm. my emotional reaction to somebody who, for example, uh, kills a drug dealer mm-hmm. in a drug transaction is very different from my reaction to somebody who ties a cinder block around a baby and throws the baby into a river. I just have which, a very different... Which, which, you've, which you've actually also had? Yes, both of those I've had. And so those are obviously very different Mm. in terms of the emotional impact I think that Mm. they have on not just me, but I think I think most people. When you go in there knowing I mean I'm I'm putting words in your mouth, but knowing what is almost an unavoidable emotional reaction towards you, knowing that you can't help but posture yourself towards those prisoners in a certain way when you know certain things about them, you say, I'd, I'd rather not know. I don't want to hear the details. I'm going to need to hear the details. I don't want them first. And the reason that I don't want them first is because I think that they can, their 
by overshadow everything else. And if that's the first thing that you know about him, mm. then you're probably not going to ever learn any of those other things about mm. him. That's and interesting. So, right. And one of the things that we do in my in my clinic and my line of work when we when we take on a client mm-hmm. is we learn everything about that person. So mm-hmm. we want to go back to three generations on the family tree. Mm-hmm. And I just find that if all that I'm thinking about when I'm talking to this person for the very mm-hmm. first time mm-hmm. are the details of the crime, I can't process any of that. What you're saying actually reminds me of something that our dad taught me. He didn't have to teach you that probably because you went into the law. But I remember his teaching me that if you ever have the opportunity to write the contract, be the first person to write the first draft, because then everything else happens in reaction to that. And it sounds like you're saying some version of that. In other words, like my initial impression of someone is going to be so powerful that everything later that I learn about that person is somehow going to play off of or be in conversation with those initial impressions that I have. Maybe we need to be doing what you're doing when you come in and meet your clients, which is to say, right now, I want to start not hearing anything bad or not hearing about the egregious things that this person did. I want to, I want to have as, as rich and as colorful and as complex of a sense of this person as a human being with all of their biographies going back three generations or going back to their childhood or going back to what they did you know, when they were a toddler or, or with their siblings as possible. And that will somehow, that will somehow open me up to them as a person. Yes, I think that it depends on what you're aspiring to. What role are you aspiring to? So what I'm aspiring to when I represent a client on death row is not really to have that person become a friend of mine or not for me to become a friend of that person. I'm not expecting when I meet these people that they're going to be my soulmates. My role is just to save that person's life. And so it's just to say that person's life, right? And so I think what I'm really doing is trying to put myself in a position where I can do the best possible job at that. And it's not that I'm going to try harder to save the life of my client if he killed a drug dealer rather than a kid. I'm not going to leave any gas in the tank for any of my clients. My job is to save the person's life. And so I need to be able to present that person as a human being to the judges who are going to decide. And in order to be able to do that, I need to be able to really appreciate the best aspects of this person. And so in a way, I think what I'm telling you, Leon, is that the practice that I've adopted in my own work is really a reflection of a limitation of mine, which is that I'm skeptical that I will be able to see past certain things that my client has done and present that client in the light in which I need to present him if I'm going to save his life, if my judgment or my vision is clouded by 
uh, the details of the crime. I'm eventually, obviously, going to have to grapple with all of the details at a very granular level, but I just don't want to do it first because I need to be forming in my mind at the very outset the best possible version of my client rather than the worst possible version of my client. Let me give you a hard time for a second. That's my job, partly because I'm in the host chair, but partly because I'm your younger brother. So that's my job. I want to say I don't believe you that the only reason you're doing it is because you want to be able to present the best picture to the jury. Because I would say if that were your only goal, then that would just matter not how you learn the facts, but how you present them to, to the jury. What I want to suggest is that actually what I, what I think you're saying has to do with the unavoidability and the honesty, the kind of alarming and beautiful honesty, which is I, I can't help I can't help but have my posture towards a human being uh, affected by those things that I know about them. I can't help it. I think that what you're really doing is bravely and honestly saying, I will try my best to do the best professional job I can as a lawyer, and I won't leave any stone unturned, no matter what this person has done. But I can't deny the fact that my posturing towards this person will be different. And therefore, at some level, the success or the passion with which I work will have an even greater effect the more warm fuzzies or or the less revulsion that I have towards this person. I think that that is a reasonable interpretation of what I said, but (laughs) But I'm wrong. (laughs) But as is often the case with the reasonable interpretation. And and I think that there are a couple of additional factors just in the way I work and in my track record that are relevant here. And one of them, of course, is that I'm just one person on a team. I've got a team of people who work for me. And I would say that In all of the years that I've been hiring people, every single person that I've hired has been somebody who is categorically opposed to the death penalty in all circumstances, no matter what you've done. And so for somebody like that, really, the crime is irrelevant. Right. You know, I mean, these are just so that's, I think, an important Mm -hmm. counterbalance to Mm -hmm. what you've just described about a possible characteristic of mine. There are three different ways to define success in what I do. What most people think of as success is you have a client and your client is innocent and you get the person out of prison. The reality is that there are not very many people on death row who didn't commit the crime. So Mm -hmm. you don't have very many of those opportunities. And the reality is that most death penalty lawyers don't want one of those opportunities because if you're representing somebody who didn't commit the crime, then It's way, 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 way harder to deal with it when the client gets executed. But that's what Mm -hmm. most people think of as success. And in my practice, there have been two guys who I represented who were innocent, who we walked out of prison. I've had a total of eight clients who I think are innocent, uh, two walked out of prison. Um, That's that's a pretty good percentage. That's a pretty good percentage. Um, One died in prison. So that's three. That leaves five. Mm-hmm. Um, four have been executed, and one is still alive. We'll see what mm-hmm. happens to the one who's still alive. Wow. Um, but if that's how you define success, then 
you're going to have a pretty low batting average just because the pool that you're choosing from of innocent guys mm -hmm. is pretty small. So usually what success means for me is I get the person moved from death row to general prison population. Mm -hmm. That's the second definition of success. The third is just keep the person alive for longer mm -hmm. than he otherwise would have been alive. So I was thinking about that second category, guys who get moved from, gen mm -hmm. from death row to general prison population. And mm -hmm. remarkably, I have had the greatest success in that category of success with people who've done some of the worst, most horrible things. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really know what to make of that. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it, it seems like if what we're talking about is correct and that the type of crime that really evokes great, great, great moral revulsion as compared to less moral revulsion mm -hmm. um, has consequences on the lawyer, on the legal system, on everything else, you would expect that most people who get off the death row and moved into the general prison population are people who committed the comparatively uh, less heinous murders. And yet, in my own experience, I don't really think that that's true. So I want to agree with you that what I've described is a limitation on my part. That is something that interferes with my mm -hmm. own capacity for empathy. Mm -hmm. um, but I just am not sure that it has any translation into the bottom line. Let me ask you a question about that second category that you just talked about, the people who committed heinous crimes and, and you were successful in getting them off of death row and into the general prison population. What has been your feeling as a lawyer when you've gotten word of that success inside, emotionally? To answer that question, I need to first uh, tell you um, that by the time these cases are resolved, I know mm -hmm. my clients really, really well. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if their parents are alive, I know their parents. If they have kids, I know their kids. I know mm -hmm. their siblings. And so that matters because by the time the case is resolved, no matter what my client did, even if it was the guy who tied a brick around the newborn and threw the newborn into the river, I know that person really, really well. And so that, I think, reveals the obvious answer to your question, which is that I feel like a human life has been saved and mm. emphasis on the word human. If I were to put together what you said just now with what you said at the beginning about your desire not to know anything about the crime before, when you first go meet them, what, what I would reflect and what I'm hearing, and, I, and I'm curious as to whether you would say I'm hearing correctly, is that the greatest service that you can do for you as a lawyer to, to your clients, but I'm, I'm of course extrapolating for me as a person to, to someone who wants to effectuate change in their life, but is to Delay as much as possible hearing and knowing about that person's misstep or horrible crime and to spend as much time as possible with that person, seeing all of their different colors, getting to know them as a human being, 
uh, and getting as broad of a context and as deep of a knowledge of that person as possible, such that their horrible crime or their misstep is one piece of a very, very rich, complex person that I now have come to know. Is that, is that fair? Totally fair. And, and I should also just say, by the way, Leon, I, I think this works in both directions. I, I think that sometimes you meet a person who the first thing you know about the person is really the good qualities. Mm, mm. And it makes it harder to really honestly right. criticize the person for the bad qualities. Have there been moments in your work with clients where you've sat across from them and you've heard their stories or you know their stories and then you've learned more and more about them and about their biographies and presumably their horrible biographies which you know sent them along a way which was not at all surprising that they found themselves doing what they found themselves doing and where you've looked at them and you've had the sense that this person has effectuated change in their life and has transformed themselves in a way that is that defies odds and that is inspiring for you personally yeah. almost always almost is that right all, oh my gosh I, you know i i would say that let's just make the numbers round if 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 i've had a hundred clients i would say that what you've just described is something that applies to 75 or 80 of them wow and i know that that will um, that that will so, surprise most people probably who are listening to this podcast. But here's here's what I would say to make it a little bit less surprising, not less impressive, mm-hmm. but less surprising. And that is that if 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 you are in your mid twenties or mid thirties or mid forties or mid fifties or older, think back to what you were like when you were seventeen or eighteen, right? And who you were when you were seventeen or eighteen, and then right. think who you are now, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years later. And, you know, there's a whole school of philosophy on, on identity and right. is the human being at age 45 the same as the human being at, at age 15 or 16 or, or 17? And I, I, don't, I don't want to get into the weeds, you know, with the philosophy, but what I would say is that people mature and they change and they grow up. And they are exposed to other human beings and other values and other ideas. And so we were just talking a moment ago about how human beings are product of their environment. And that's all true, but it doesn't stop being true once you go into prison. You continue to be a product of your environment, and that environment continues to accrete and change. And so when when I meet somebody who's 35, 40, 45 years old, who's in prison for something that he did when he's 22, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting somebody who is at some level not even the same human being. It sounds to me like the kind of transformation that those 70% uh, has ha- have undergone is not just a function of having gotten to age 40 or 50. It sounds to me like you've merited being witness to and in the presence of people who have truly transformed themselves in a way that is not just a function of I've been around for 20 more years and, and, and matured in a kind of, you know, at a natural pace. I, 
agree with that entirely. I, I talk a little bit about that in Autobiography of an Execution, where I say that the one thing that you have plenty of time to do when you're on death row is think about all the crap you've done mm. because there's no TV and there's no right. internet. And, right. and, and so you're sitting there for 23 hours a day in your cell and you're thinking and you're reflecting. And right. even if you don't have training in philosophy or theology or religion or anything, you're still able to experience regret mm. and shame. Mm. And so if you've lived a life that has been defined by causing pain to others, and now you're alone all by yourself, mm. unable to avoid the memories of that, mm. I my my experience with my clients is that it causes them regret and it causes them shame and mm. those emotional reactions contribute to change i want to first of all say that uh your clients are lucky to have you and sometimes when i worry about you uh and the fact that you spend so many of your waking hours doing what you do, which is as exhausting as it is and as depressing as it is because the institutional forces fighting against your chances of success are so uh, tremendous. And because when you do lose, which is normally what happens, you see a human being's life taken away. I want to also say that it's as many years as I've known you've been doing this work, I've never... Uh, quite heard you say and and share in the way that you just did the privilege that you're offered to witness people undergo serious serious transformation and that's something that's so hard to effectuate um, that in that sense it's a gift that you're given a kind of front row seat to seeing people who take that process seriously even though they uh, they got nothing to gain from it they're just yes. doing it. Thank you very much, David, for doing the work you do, and thank you for being here. Leon, thank you for doing the work you do, and thank you for <laughs> inviting me to be here with you. I've enjoyed it a lot. I'm not sure if you could hear, but when my brother David thanked me for doing the work that I do, I laughed. Even though I don't know exactly what it is that I do, I do know that it's not life-saving nor does it involve freeing people from unjust incarceration. Unless it does, kind of, a bit, at least if the Torah could get its way. Both of our stories, that of Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, and that of Dan and Delia, begin with liminal places of movement, swimming in the river, or with the fluid movement of dance. That world of fluidity is frightening. It's hard to inhabit. So, we look for sources of stability. But instead of finding a momentary foothold, we all too often create cell blocks. Most often, perhaps, we imprison the other person. We subjugate them to their past. We reify their deed and freeze them. They can only ever become who they once were. By declaring that, we try to assert control over our environment and, of course, also over them. But at that moment, we also imprison ourselves. Rabbi Diane Kohler-Essis 
said that it's liberating to allow a person to be both, both the person who caused hurt and the person who's so deeply committed to goodness. David Dow offered a different, more intentional path to liberation, one that he engages in as a death penalty lawyer, but I think it's one we'd be wise to adopt in our lives. We can refuse to let a person's misdeeds be the very first thing we hear, because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that doing so will cut us off from appreciating the richness and complexity of who that person is, or we can choose not to ask about them at all, and we can inquire even three generations back as to who this person is who sits across from us. To be sure, this fluidity, this freedom, can be, well, a bit terrifying, which is why, as Rabbi Diane Kohler S. has suggested, it's so important to find sources of tethering. It's my hope and my prayer that the combined voices of Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, of Dan and of Delia, of Diane and of David, and maybe mine too, can offer you one such source. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Diane Kohler Essis and my dear brother, Professor David Dow, to our producer, Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman, our sound editor, to Michael Gelsamer for the original music, to our fantabulous intern, Hannah Taylor, and of course, to my chevruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the friendship, and the Torah study with a quiver slung over his shoulder. Please visit our website, www.podrash.org, where you'll find links to the original episode of Invisibilia and to Joel's and my extended chavruta, along with the text that we referenced. And subscribe to our newsletter so we can keep you posted about what's next. Wait a second. This is episode 5, the season finale. What is next? Plans are in the works for a bonus episode set to release October 22nd and for season 2, but we need your help. We're looking for a few good listeners out there to offer us vital feedback. Please go to padrash.org forward slash survey and give us your thoughts. Of course, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating. It really helps. See you on October 22nd. And in the meantime, Gemar Chatima Tova. May you be sealed in the Book of Life.